The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everybody. This is your guest host today, Jonathan Ruth here calling in from New Hampshire this uh, sunny August 3rd day in 2015. And we're really excited to have all of our listeners joining us today. Uh, as we talk about uh, recovery from trauma, our guest today is Michelle Rosenthal, and Michelle is uh, an author and also a, a survivor. She's going to be discussing the deep effects of trauma, their impact on identity, and how to create a successful approach to recovery. Uh, Michelle Rosenthal is a best-selling author and a certified professional coach. She's a former faculty member of the Clinical Development Institute for Timberline Knowles Residential Treatment Center. And she's the founder of HealMyPTSD.com. Michelle is also a trauma survivor who struggled with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder for over 25 years before making a full recovery. In her role as a mental health advocate, Michelle is the winner of the Survivor Advocate Award and finalist for the Health Activist Hero Award. She's also made frequent media appearances. Michelle's books include the recovery memoir, Before the World Intruded, Conquering the Past and Creating the Future. This this book was also selected as a finalist for the Books for a Better Life Award, the Next Generation Indie Book Award, and the International Book Award. Uh, Other titles include Your Life After Trauma, which we'll be talking about today, Powerful Practices for Reclaiming Your Identity, and Heal Your PTSD, Dynamic Strategies That Work. So, Diane, it's, uh, Michelle, it's really wonderful to have you on the show today. Um, certainly, you have made a significant contribution to, uh, uh, to the world in terms of um, providing some tools and experiences for people who have suffered a trauma and are looking to find ways to reclaim their identity and move ahead uh, in the face of what their trauma has uh, or in the face of how their trauma has impacted you. So, again, welcome to the show, and thank you so much. Thank you for recognizing the importance of talking about this stuff. There are so many of us that struggle and suffer, but the more we talk about it as a community, the more opportunity I think there is for healing. So thank you. You're welcome. And, um, you know, you, you make a great point in terms of community, and, uh, you know, our hope through this show is to be able to provide education uh, and to help improve the community awareness of, of a variety of issues, you know, relating to mental health and substance abuse recovery. And trauma certainly is uh, a topic that spans across all mental health and substance abuse treatment uh, and recovery disciplines. It definitely does. You know, so many of us, we don't realize as a society, I think, how prevalent trauma is, and especially post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. We see so often the media covers combat 
and PTSD together, but you don't hear about the rest of the world and their PTSD experience in terms of domestic violence, child abuse, natural disasters, car accidents, sexual assault. There's a large PTSD population, and I think it's so important to, to really bring that to light as we start this conversation. Right, right. Well, you are absolutely right, and I think the... Um uh, the, you know, the common misperception is that you've, you have to have had, you know, a significantly um, violent or, or, you know, other, um, you know, life-threatening situation in order to consider your experience trauma. Is that, you know, is that a, a falsity? You know, I think that's a good starting point, and that certainly, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago was part of the clinical PTSD diagnosis. You had to have experienced a life-threatening event. But now, as we learn more and more about trauma, that definition of PTSD, life-threatening trauma, really has broadened and expanded to something that is more inclusive. So certainly the life-threatening experience is still the baseline. But we include in that now, it doesn't have to have happened directly to you. You could have witnessed that kind of experience happening to someone else. Or you could have heard about it happening to someone that you deeply, deeply love and care about. And we're starting to broaden the PTSD life-threatening experience criteria to include all kinds of definitions. And, and I, at first I thought, well, how, how does that work? You know, like, do you or don't you have to have a life-threatening experience? But what we know from the brain is that when you imagine something, your brain lights up and works as if you are experiencing something. And so it does make sense to broaden the, the definition and the criteria to go beyond just the individual who survived the life-threatening experience to others who are associated with and connected to. You know, you, um, I, I, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the brain and the brain's role in trauma uh, in a little bit. And, uh, but one of the things I think you really talked about and are very eloquent about in your book, Your Life After Trauma, is is Little T and big T trauma, and I was wondering if you could just sort of explain that to our listeners a little bit. Absolutely, and and that's such a great next question, so thank you for that, because I think it dives even deeper down into the material that we were just talking about. We all think about big T trauma, and certainly I'm a survivor of big T trauma, so right away I understood, okay, that kind of event can rock your world. Big T trauma we look at in terms of those life-threatening events that do really threaten your physical and emotional safety. So the big the big ones, like combat or a car accident or a natural disaster or any of the other things that I listed earlier. Big T trauma is easy to understand and it's pretty simple to spot. Little T trauma are those daily stressors, those disappointments, those unexpected outcomes, the things that happen to us that don't allow our lives to go forward the way that we thought they were going to. And while the breakup of a love affair isn't necessarily a death sentence, it can feel so horrific in the moment, for example. And so that can be a little T trauma in terms of how you respond to yourself and others and the rest of the world for the rest of that day or that week or that month. The little T traumas can actually add up to a point where they become so overwhelming that if you're already coping with a big T trauma, 
the little T traumas can add up and tip the balance where you go from coping to flat out falling apart. And that's the thing that I think is so interesting. I work with so many clients who come to me and say, you know, I was doing just fine and then this little thing happened. And I say, well, of course you were <laughs> because I see us all as pitchers of water and you can have a big T trauma that you really, you get it, it makes sense and it fills up your pitcher to the brim and you cope to contain that event. And then someone pours like just the tiniest tablespoon full of water and you know what happens, it, the pitcher starts to overflow. And so we see that balance of big T and little T trauma adding up and interacting with each other in how they both affect a soul and a person as they go through the world. Right. Yeah, and I think that's a really great visual, you know, because it's important for people to understand that um, there's cumulative effects of stressors. uh, And for somebody who's experienced a big T trauma, uh, in particular, and, and feels like they've moved on from it, all of those smaller T traumas, like you said, they have a cumulative effect, and they keep, they keep filling the pitcher to the point where it's ready to spill again. And, you know, um, Jonathan, mostly that happens because we don't deal with the big T trauma that's underlying everything. So, yeah. and I'll give you a perfect example. I had a client who, and she, this, she came to me for a big T trauma. She was raped, and she thought that's what we needed to work on. And when she came in and we started working on treatment and therapeutic processes to alleviate the stress of this trauma, what she discovered underneath was that she'd really been sexually abused as a child. And that, combined with this other trauma, had really, beyond just coping, she had gone into another realm of total dysfunction when you put the two together. And we see that happen a lot. I think the most exciting thing is that when we recognize what's underlying the way that we're feeling or coping we can really start to do something about it. For so long, for example, I just thought I was crazy. I, you know, my trauma, I was 13 years old. It was 1981, and everyone was looking at this civilian medical trauma survivor as not a candidate for PTSD because at that time, PTSD was just being applied to veterans coming out of Vietnam. I wasn't even looked at in terms of trauma. Everybody just told my parents, she'll bounce back. Right. But we don't know. We'll make her better and she'll be all set. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and then you think that you've suppressed everything and you know, if we're not educated, we think that's the thing to do. You want to be brave, you want to be courageous. I wanted my family to be able to move on and 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 you think that you're doing the right thing to contain that pitcher of water when really what you need to do is pour that pitcher out and start fresh. And, and right. we don't know how to do that, we're frightened to do that, or we just flat out don't want to because it's, it's uncomfortable. And then later, the little T traumas start adding up, and we have very little extra coping capacity. Right. And so, you know, um, your, your personal experience really seems to be a driver behind, um, you know, writing the book and, and, you know, providing some tools and techniques for people. Is that, is that accurate? It's totally accurate. I am sorry to say. <laughs> Everything I have today goes back to that, but now in a good way. You know, for a long time, right. um, I was driven by the trauma in so many negative ways, and then I learned how to make something good come out of it. Right, right. Well, I, I mean, I think that, you know, um, you know, there are a lot of people who write books, you know, but when you can really put your 
um, your personal experience behind it and, and help people to say, you know, this, this works. This, you know, this, yeah. is, uh, you know, I've shared some experience here and these techniques and, and um, these strategies and this understanding helps. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's really a gift to, uh, to other people. So, um, so thank you for putting your life into words here and, and, um, and putting your life's work into, uh, you know, a format that can help other people uh, be able to benefit. Thank you so much because that means a lot to me. When uh, My trauma was medical, so when I came out of the hospital, I remember so vividly leaving the hospital and thinking two things. Number one, you didn't deserve to survive. And number two, you better do something really worthwhile since you did. <laughs> and then right. I fell into the abyss of PTSD and I couldn't do anything worthwhile. And so it means a lot to me to, to, to come back now and, and for you to say what you did because I, I made good on the promise that I made to myself that I would do something worthwhile with that. Because I think, you know, at a certain point, Jonathan, we have to do something meaningful. We can't always find meaning in our traumas, but we can make meaning come out of them. And I've, I've worked really hard to make that happen. Right. Well, and I think, um, you know, would you, would you say that that's pretty a, a really common experience for folks that, you know, one of their reactions is, you know, I, I didn't deserve to live through this or um, I'm not sure how I got here, you know, uh, first maybe I didn't deserve to have this happen to me, but then, you know, how was I supposed to survive this? I, I do. I think that's very common in two different ways. Number one, if you survived but other people didn't, there's a lot of guilt that goes along with that. And I think even if you're alone in your survival, if for whatever reason, we get so distorted in our post-trauma views uh, and, and all kinds of myths and lies that we tell ourselves trying to find a way to organize the chaos that trauma creates. And sometimes you tell yourself the wrong thing, and then that becomes a belief, and then, you know, we're driven by our beliefs all day. So, So it becomes a sort of slippery slope. Right, absolutely. Well, um, so when we come back from the break, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about how um, how people can help uh, break that cycle of thinking and what's going on, you know, when they understand what's happening in their brain, both from trauma and from their response to trauma. And again, we'll uh, we're here with Michelle Rosenthal, uh, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes after this break. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Running is one of the fastest-growing sports, with everyday people stepping it up and training for that next big race goal. The In-Flight Running Show with Coach Michael Merlino is your guide to running. 
whether you're just getting started or training for the Boston Marathon. By paying attention to and following the tips offered by Michael and his guests, you'll be able to take your running to new heights and reach your next finish line with confidence. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to this episode of One Hour at a Time. This is your guest host today, Jonathan Ruthier, and our guest today is Michelle Rosenthal, an author and uh, trauma survivor, and Michelle's um, book, Your Life After Trauma, contains a number of uh, helpful tips and information uh, for people to help reclaim their identity and uh, move ahead with their life after trauma. So um, again, Michelle, it's great to have you on the show today. And Before the break, we started talking a little bit about... Um, you know what happens to a person uh, what happens to a person's brain through trauma and you know what sort of things are going on biologically and, and physiologically that uh, make it difficult for people to uh, recover from a traumatic experience you know this is such an important topic because for so many years I'll just give you an example of myself I thought I was insane I thought that after my trauma when the insomnia started the anxiety the nightmares that kept happening over and over it was the same recurring nightmare <laughs> and I thought all of these memories that kept popping up at odd moments or the sensation that would suddenly just whoosh over me that I didn't predict I thought all of that was just me being me in terms of some people are just meant to be crazy and I was one of them and I literally bought into that especially because I'm I'm a writer I've been a writer my whole life so it was easy to you know say well you know she's a temperamental artist <laughs> and then I thought great <laughs> genius artists are all crazy I'm going to be genius but you know you can move through the world like that and there's at least in my head, there was always this little voice saying, I don't want to be crazy. You know, like, I I don't want this to be who I am. And so I started researching. Eventually, you know, it took me 24 years to get a PTSD diagnosis. And that came about because I started researching, what the heck is wrong with me? Why am I crazy? And as I started researching, this was in the late 90s, but now, you know, we're, we're almost... 20 years later and there's so much more science that's come out, I started to understand I wasn't crazy, that trauma definitely changes the brain and changes it in significant, long-lasting ways, all of which are reversible, but can really rock who you are and how you behave. And, And so in your life after trauma, I'll be honest with you, Jonathan, I'm not a science person. So when I started doing all of that research for myself, it was very difficult. I couldn't understand a lot of what I read. And then after my recovery and when I started writing Your Life After Trauma, I thought, I'm going to make this really easy, which is what I strove (laughs) to do in the book. Right, right. Well, and, you know, know, what's it like for somebody who's experiencing PTSD to, to try to absorb, you know, a lot of written material? 
It's so difficult, and whether it's PTSD or you're just struggling with the after effects of trauma, so often just trauma itself starts to put in place sleep changes, and we see a lot of sleep deprivation. Trauma can dysregulate the part of your brain that helps you focus and pay attention. So without that ability, it's very hard to stay focused when you're reading. We have trouble being being able to concentrate and also to process what we're reading. You know, after trauma, you can exist in a fog. It's a fog of changed neurochemistry. It's a fog of emotional upset and upheaval. So no matter how you're experiencing it, it can be really, really tough to read and comprehend. And, and you know, I wrote Your Life After Trauma from a place of a healed survivor, but I always remember what it was like to struggle. And so I write with that in mind to break the concepts down so it's really easy to start understanding trauma turns on your survival mode and sometimes it never turns off, and that's where we start getting into problems. Right, right. And so, um, and I think you do a really great job of describing, sort of, you know, your brain before trauma. Uh, and you talked about, you know, there's really, um, the, the brain is essentially uh, comprised of three different areas, right? There's the mm-hmm. brain stem, then the midbrain, and then cortex and forebrain, uh, which is the part of the brain that's developed um, you know, as uh, as humans, you know, advanced, uh, you know, from from their earlier forms, and um, and so these and these parts of the brain are all interrelated, and messages are going back and forth. So, what happens, uh, you know, in a in a person's brain with these different structures when they've had a traumatic experience? Well, we start with a trauma when you experience a threat to your personal safety. Your sympathetic nervous system turns on and amps up all of your stress-related hormones so that you move into the fight, flight, or freeze survival response. And in that place, we see a slew of body changes so that your digestion, for example, turns off your reproductive system can turn off, all unessential survival systems shut down while your blood pressure goes up, your breathing becomes more shallow, your heart beats more quickly, and all of the blood goes to your extremities so that you can engage in this response. After trauma, so often we see we can get stuck in that sympathetic nervous system response, and here's why. And to write your life after trauma, I am not a science, I, I am not a science person. I was actually really science phobic when it came to writing about science. So when my editor said we really need to put all this stuff in, I thought, oh no, how am I going to do that and do it really precisely? So okay. I, I became friends with a lot of neuroscientists while I was writing this book to make sure I really got it right. And here's how one described the, the three different parts of the brain to me. I loved it and it made so much sense. He said that the, the brain stem is your, you know, your reptilian brain. That's the part of your brain that is in charge of all of your survival responses. It doesn't think. It just reacts. Your midbrain is where we really process all of our emotions. And so that's the part of your brain that feels. And then your outer brain is the part of your brain, as you said earlier, that's the most human, the most developed. That cortex, and especially your frontal lobes, are in charge of all of your executive thinking, your decision-making, your analysis, and your logical thought. 
Now, the way this neuroscientist explained it to me is during trauma and afterward, if we get stuck in the survival response, during trauma, you can think of your brain like a corporation. The reptilian brain is the mail room. And the cortex is the CEO. And he said to me, Michelle, during a trauma and afterward, if people get stuck in that trauma response, it's because of this. The CEO, your cortex, is drunk under the desk and the mailroom is running the corporation. And I love that imagery because what that really means is your reptilian brain, your survival mechanism that doesn't think, just acts is really in charge. And what we see is that the cortex can be so overwhelmed, for example, by the flood of sensory information that comes from the survival response, that it actually goes offline. It just gets so overwhelmed. It says, you know what, I'm not doing this. And what that leaves in charge is the reptilian brain that says, well, I'm going to make sure you're safe and I am going to keep you safe at all costs. And so when we look at the brain in that way, we've had these three levels, and they need to all work together. You're supposed to have your reptilian brain say, hey, there's a threat here. And your, your cortex, your executive function, is supposed to come up and say, I got this, no problem, relax. In a dysregulated brain after trauma, that doesn't happen. And so you keep it sort of like pinging danger, danger, danger. And you keep right. responding as if there's a danger, even though sometimes and, and very often there's no danger at all. Right. So that's sort of it in a nutshell. And, and I think the most important yeah. thing is to understand that because when we don't, and then we have these ridiculous responses. I'll just give you an example from my own life. My, my trauma was medical. So you can imagine after having a, a horrific medical um, trauma, I, I had a, a hard time going to the doctor after that. And when they needed to do tests many years later because I was just falling apart physically and mentally, I was shaking so much. But the doctor went out and said to my parents, we can't do this test. What is wrong with her that she's just shaking uncontrollably and she won't speak? And my mom said to him, well, you know, she did have a trauma that was medical at the age of 13. And the doctor said to her, she's 29 now. She's not thinking about that anymore. And that was (laughs) true. It's not that you're necessarily thinking thinking about about it. Right, but your, but you know, your your reptilian brain was responding to it, right? You saw it as a threat, and you know, was uh, was ready to sort of you know get you into flight mode. Exactly, and your co- and your cortex just shuts down. I couldn't communicate. I couldn't respond. You're just overwhelmed by the the sensations, and and so, and so I'm so glad that you brought all this up because so often you can think that you're crazy when really it's just your neurobiology is responding to. A, pa- a neural pathway, for example, that got embedded and has been triggered. And so right. we can blame ourselves for these responses or we can be a little more compassionate with ourselves and say, hey, my neurophysiology is all hooked in to this issue. And until I retrain and rewire my brain, it's going to be like this. But once I do retrain and rewire my brain, I'm going to be fine. And that's the most right. important thing to know. Well, and that sounds really really, really empowering and hopeful for people because, you know, when you realize, okay, this isn't something that's sort of happening to me from an outside force right now. This is something that my body is doing in response to things that that did happen to me and it's trying to prepare me for something that that maybe isn't there. And and I can do something about that. 
mm. and I can train, retrain my brain to, to respond a different way to things that are not real threats anymore or not as significant threats anymore. That's so true because we, we develop anxiety, which is really just a, a fear of the future, right? Anxiety is never about what's happening to you in the moment. It's about what right. you're worried will happen to you. And so, so often, and, and this is, you know, your life after trauma, powerful practices to reclaim your identity. The whole reason I wrote about the identity component is because trauma changes how we see ourselves. And when we forget to focus on healing the damage that's done to our self-perception, then we're overlooking really a core foundation for recovery because if you come out of a trauma and it has severely impacted how you see yourself, your perception, your feeling about who you are, then you're always moving through the world feeling less than, feeling less, as you said, you know, you use the word empowered. And that is the opposite of what we are after trauma. But in recovery... We learn to make that shift from powerless to powerful, and that right. to me is what it's really all about. It absolutely is, and um, we're going to go to a break here in just a second, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, about identity and, and why it's so important for people who have experienced trauma to really understand how their, um, you know, what, the tools that they have to reclaim the, the identity that they choose for themselves. So again, we'll be back after the break. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hey, good afternoon, everybody, and again, welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is your guest host, Jonathan Ruthier. 
and we're speaking today with Michelle Rosenthal, who's a best-selling author. Um, she's also the founder of HealMyPTSD.com, and we're talking specifically about life after trauma and practices to reclaim your identity. So, Michelle, welcome back from the break. Um, and just before we broke, we were talking a little bit about the role of identity and why it is so uh, important to understand um, identity formation and how it changes uh, when working with somebody who um, has experienced trauma. I I think it's so critical, and I am so passionate about this because identity is really how we see not only ourselves but the world. You know, you can break everything down into how we see ourselves affects how we see others, what we expect others to do and see in us, and then what we feel we're able to achieve in the world and how we approach those goals of what we want to achieve in the world. So to me, identity is really the crux of everything. And, you know, it's formed between the ages of 13 and 18. So we have this critical time of forming identity. And then if anything has happened prior to that trauma-wise or during that time, what I see happen so often is that the trauma becomes a part of our identity, which it would, but it tends to dominate our identity. And if you have a trauma that happens after you've already formed your identity, let's say you're 25, 35, 45, 55, one of the things that happens is you feel like you've lost the identity that you were used to. So whether you had a a pre-trauma self because you were old enough to have an identity or you didn't, what I see across the board is so universal is that trauma changes how we see ourselves and that changes how we define ourselves and that starts putting limitations on how we behave and what we think. And so turning all of that around is essential if we're going to be free of the past. So, you know, it sounds like, um, you know, when, when somebody experiences a tra- you know, something traumatic, uh, it really shakes the core of, you know, their belief system and how they see themselves in the world. That's so true, and I think we were talking before, and I think I said that beliefs drive 100% of your behavior. That is such a critical thing to understand. What you believe is what you see, it's what you hear, it's what you experience. So we have to be super careful about our beliefs. Going back to the example that I gave earlier about myself, I left the hospital and due to, I'd had a near-death experience in the hospital and I had walked out of there really feeling, girl, you did not deserve to survive. You shouldn't be here. And, and I, and I, I embrace that belief. <laughs> and when you right. embrace a belief that negative, that, uh, that life-killing, you behave that way. So rather than, you know, I came out of the hospital, my mom was just so joyful that I lived. That was her whole perspective. Celebrate your survival. That was her whole thing. And I was just so overwhelmed with the fact that I shouldn't have lived that I treated myself as someone who didn't deserve to have lived. I didn't feel I deserved anything. No joy, no happiness, no success, nothing, no, n- no new clothes. I mean, it just it got down to like ridiculous things. Eventually, you didn't deserve to eat, and I became anorexic. So we put in place all of these beliefs, I don't know, I think to sort of 
give ourselves, as I said earlier, an, or, an organization to the chaos that trauma creates. But then when yeah. we're driven by these beliefs, we can really wreck our lives because, for example, if you don't believe you deserve to be alive, then you don't believe you deserve to be treated well. You get into bad relationships. You take right. on bad risk-taking behaviors because you don't value yourself at all. And so... When, when we're looking at healing after trauma, we really start to have to begin that process at looking right. at what we think of who we are now because that right. affects all of what you're worth and deserve anyplace else. Right, right. And, you know, if, you, if you're, like you said, you know, if you are constantly seeing yourself as powerless and you're seeing yourself as... Um, uh, a, a victim, um, you know. You know how does that you know impact your ability to relate to others? I mean, it's you know if you look at the signs and symptoms of you know a PTSD, that you know the, the notion of avoidance, the notion of um, mm. you know uh, you know keeping to yourself or you know having trouble connecting or feeling things you know with any sort of intensity. That's all about protecting yourself. But you know, it's it also helps to fuel those beliefs that you don't. You don't belong. You don't deserve to be part of something. That's so true. And, you know, the way I see it is trauma really affects identity in four different ways. So first you have it changes all of your belief system. And then you put on top of that, it changes the meaning. How you see yourself and your life and the meaning that you give it is implied according to the belief system that you have. So if suddenly you don't believe you, sur- you deserve to survive or you don't believe that you deserve to have a good future, then the meaning of everything you experience starts to get filtered that way. So everything means according to your belief. And that brings us to the third element, trauma changes your story. And when you change your story, you change who you are. So sticking with the example of myself, just because it's easier, my story was you don't deserve to be here. You didn't deserve to survive. You are a trauma survivor who just got lucky. And that, when you start telling yourself that kind of story, that's so different than, you know, another survivor who'd come out and say, oh, this is awesome. I got a second chance. Changes right. your whole perspective on it, on everything, which brings us to the fourth element of how trauma changes your identity, that self-perception key. If you are telling yourself the story, oh, this is awesome, I got a second chance, your self-definition is of someone who deserves and who can versus my self-definition was someone who didn't deserve and who can't. So we have those four elements, belief, meaning, story, and self-definition, and they all wrap together into one identity package. And so we can work with them together or separate them out and see where am I really having trouble here and what needs to be tweaked so that I can reclaim my identity and from that solid, secure base go forward in recovery. Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, Jonathan, one of the biggest fears I had in recovery, and I see this in my clients all the time, is if I give up all of my post-trauma responses, the anxiety, the fear, the thoughts, the memories, who will I be then? Right. And it's that fear that can really hold you back in recovery. 
So if you work on giving yourself that secure base of an identity, it paves the way for successful recovery because then you're transitioning in a way that feels, A, more in your control, B, you've chosen it, and C, it's a smooth transition rather than I've been post-trauma or PTSD active for so long and now you're taking all that away from me. That's terrifying. Right. Absolutely, and if you, you know, the protective nature of, of, you know, the change in identity, even though it's no longer needed, right, because somebody is safe now, you know, that's just, you know, they've gotten used to that layer of protection. So, you know, so in your work with folks, um, you know, where does somebody start? Uh, you, know, change, you know, thinking about adopting a new identity seems like a Herculean task. And, you know, so how does somebody start? We bring it down to something that's so basic and so easy and something that so many survivors we forget to do. It starts with choices and actions and just beginning to define what do you want. So often when we're symptomatic, we walk around, we can't stand ourselves. We're very clear on all the stuff we hate about ourselves. Or we're really, really foggy and we just have no clue. Either way, the first thing to do to start bringing yourself to that transition, powerless to powerful, it starts with deciding what do you want? Who do you want to be? If you don't like who you are today, who do you want to be tomorrow? And it's very easy to say, oh, God, I don't even know. But there are practices and there are processes in your life after trauma geared toward that because I remember what that was like. I have no clue. But one of the things that I love to do is start reminding people you have choices, and those choices lead to actions. And when those things are directly coming out of your desire now you're getting somewhere. So I worked with a, a client once, and she, she was just so post-traumatic, so symptomatic, and struggling. And I said to her, let's just start with something easy. What do you want for lunch? It was 11 o'clock, so she was going to go to lunch after our appointment. And I said, what do you want? Just tell me what you want for lunch. And she looked at me, and her eyes filled with tears, and she said, I can't even think straight. I don't know. I don't know what I want for lunch. I just eat whatever's there. And I said, well, for the next week, I'd like you just to make a little dedicated practice. Just be aware of checking in with yourself and saying, what do I want to eat? That's it. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's just three times a day. Just check in and ask. And Jonathan, she came back the next week with this big grin on her face. And it doesn't always happen this quickly, but that's how ready she was to do this work. Um, She came back with this huge grin on her face, and she said, I know what I want for lunch. And she was carrying this shopping bag, and she said, more than that, I knew something else that I wanted. And I said, well, what is it? And she pulled out this beautiful yellow dress and showed it to me and put it, you know, held it up to herself. And she said, I wanted a yellow dress. And it was just that simple, but it put her back in touch with who she was. She was a woman who wanted a yellow dress and, by the way, grilled cheese for lunch. (laughs) Grilled cheese it was, right. Yeah, it it starts very small, simple things, starting to reclaim a sense of who you are, that sense of self, and it has to do with your desires. Right, absolutely. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, support people are not... um, not aware of that need for somebody to be able to make those choices on their own. We can talk a little bit more about that after the break, but, um, you know, some of the, uh, uh, you know, the strategies that we're going to look at are, you know, how do you help 
um, put yourself in, in a position of, again, sort of reclaiming some power and decision-making in your life, and um, you know, how, do you, how do you take that forward. So, again, we're going to take a, a short break, and we'll be back again with Michelle Rosenthal talking about your life after trauma. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. In the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. And good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is your guest host, Jonathan Ruth here, and we're talking with Michelle Rosenthal today. Michelle is an author, and uh, she's also a certified professional coach and founder of HealMyPTSD.com. And we're talking about um, Michelle's book, Your Life After Trauma, Powerful Practices to Reclaim Your Identity. And just before the break, we started to talk a little bit about the role that caregivers play in supporting uh, people who have experienced trauma. And, uh, you know, Michelle, you know, I think sometimes caregivers don't know what to do. Um, they want to be helpful. They want to be supportive. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, sometimes caregivers can either feel frustrated not knowing how to best support somebody or uh, they may feel like they have to be super controlling or super, um, you know, safe uh, safety conscious, and you know what? What is your advice to um, both survivors of trauma and the caregivers in terms of you know how to be supportive? I think that this is. I'm so glad that you brought this up because I think it's a very difficult combination. As a caregiver, you're in your right mind. Your executive function is working perfectly. Your CEO sees exactly how to run the company, and you're trying to express that to somebody whose mailroom is in control of their company and doesn't see the value of all that. And and it can become a very contentious relationship. You're, you love this person. You care about this person. You want to help this 
person, and yet here's the real rub of recovery. You can't do anything. You can suggest, you can help, you can support, but the action of recovery, the engagement and the participation have to come from the survivor. And until that person is ready and willing to do that, it can be very frustrating to be a caregiver. And so I I think a couple of the most important things to understand is, number one, that the person that you're trying to help is not always going to appreciate your help. That's just the way it's going to be. And you have to accept with a certain amount of patience that this person is struggling. And so they're not always going to be able to hop on to what you're suggesting or even agree with it. So that's one thing. Another thing is to recognize that in your role as caregiver, it's very important not to enable a sense of powerlessness. It's very tempting to watch a survivor make bad decisions and say, well, I'm going to come in and I'm going to make better decisions for you. But while that may be necessary sometimes, and certainly there were times my parents needed to do that for me. I'm thinking of a particular summer they decided I really needed to come home from college (laughs) and and deal with my eating disorder. Um, But while that's in extreme situations is a good thing, the more decisions you take away from, the more control you take away from a survivor, the more you're activating a sense of powerlessness, which increases anxiety. And so being a caregiver is tough. You have to find the balance of being supportive and loving and expecting people to engage and hoping that they will, and being able to take the reins when someone needs you to, but knowing when to let them go as well. So it's a thankless job, and my heart goes out to caregivers. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think for a lot of people, it's a real, you know, it's a real struggle, but it's it's important, like you said, to try to get information about what what um, their loved one may be experiencing, so that there's a context in which you know to to put all of this. It, it doesn't necessarily mean the frustration will end, or, or that everybody will be always doing what the, what somebody else needs at the exact time they need it, but to really be understanding that, okay, this is a process. It doesn't just change with one decision or it doesn't just change with, um, you know, with, uh, you know, one day's worth of good work. So, you know, and as people are, are thinking about, um, you know, going through this internal work that's necessary to create a post-trauma identity, I think you've done a really nice job in your book of talking about what are the common obstacles um, that yeah. people face and, you know, maybe in relationships may be a part of that. Um, but maybe you could tell us a little bit more about, you know, what to expect. If somebody's going to be, you know, uh, really trying this on and, and making uh, the effort to, to work on this on their own or, or with the help of a professional, you know, what are some of the things that they might run across? Well, I think you just made a really great point, the idea of education. Whether you're a caregiver or a survivor, to me, it really all starts there. You have to understand what's happening. That's why the science is so important. But that's also why this you're talking really about Chapter 6 in your life after trauma. I wanted people to know this is not a straightforward process. There are going to be walls that come up and things that you're going to have to deal with and you're going to feel like you've had a setback, but that's all normal for the recovery process and that's important for everyone to understand. So in terms of outlining, in the book I outline 10 of the most popular problems, the things that get you to stall or even stop your recovery process. And so some of those um, to me, are really things that if you understand from both the caregiver and the survivor perspective, you can help 
each in your own way. My, my favorite and my very first technique is to start shifting the language that you use and how you approach recovery. And I call it more intention, less expectation. Because so often we have expectations as caregivers and as survivors. This is what you have to do or this is how it's going to go. And expectations are really beliefs in disguise. (laughs) And we know beliefs drive your behavior. So if you expect, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get into this recovery program and I'm going to work with this therapist once a week and in three months I'm going to be all better. I have a client who's struggling with this right now. He's, it's four months and he's so much farther along than where he was, but he thought he'd be done by now. And that really slows him down because he gets so frustrated and irritated with himself that instead of doing the recovery work, he spends a lot of time judging himself and criticizing himself. And so I like to make the shift expectations out the window. I don't care how it's supposed to go. I only care that it goes. And things go because of your intention, meaning we decide how am I going to show up and manage or behave in this moment. And that's all that matters. So, for example, saying I'm going to just show up for this therapy appointment or I'm going to read this book. And that's, that's all I'm expecting is that I'm going to show up and engage. And then from there, things naturally design themselves. When you have an attitude of intention, you're open. Anything could happen. When you have an attitude of expectation, you're closed. It has to happen this way. And if it doesn't, you get thrown. So that's that's one of my first and, and favorite things to talk about. Well, I think that's a really, really helpful perspective um, because, as you know, I mean, for for people who experience the trauma, the issue of of needing to have some control over an outcome is really important, mm. and being able to start to let go and say, you know, I can't control the outcome of everything in life. I'm hoping that things will go this way. I'll put myself in that place to be able to get there, you know, and, and try to create the right conditions for things to happen, but you know, sometimes life is not in our control. And and that's so, the irony, I think, of yeah. trauma recovery, is that after yeah. a trauma, we want two things. We want to feel safe and in control. Yeah. And right. in order to heal, we need to be able to feel safe when things are out of control. Right. Because right. that control issue is really a coping mechanism that we put into place after trauma. But that's... That, you're supposed to do that so that you're su- you survive, but that's not the right. way you're supposed to live. <laughs> and that's right. where the, the, you know, the issue becomes a little prickly. We're supposed to have that sympathetic nervous system amp up and get us through survival, and then the body's supposed to naturally shift into responsive mode, and your parasympathetic nervous system is supposed to come up and reverse all of the sympathetic nervous system um, right. activity. And psychologically, we're supposed to do that too, but so often we don't. Right. Well, you, um, I could certainly uh, continue to talk about this topic with you for, for the next uh, probably six hours um, without break, but unfortunately we are running out of time for today's show. Um, we're really grateful to have had you on the show today, Michelle, and, and where can people get a copy of your book or learn more about the work that you're doing? The book is available everywhere, online and off, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all your major bookstores, and also, of course, online. And on the yourlifeaftertraumabook.com website, you can get it there. But what I really wanted to share is that all of the exercises in the book are available for free on the site. 
So you can work with me, actually, sort of vicariously while you're reading the book, which I think makes it a little easier than trying to do an exercise and remember what you're doing. I personally made all the MP3s, so while you're working through the book, you can come hang out with me, too. Fantastic. Well, you've provided a great resource uh, in the book and the other tools that you've provided online. We're really grateful to have had you on the show today. And to all our listeners out there, we thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you again or or speak with you again uh, at this time next week, 3 o'clock Eastern Time, 12 o'clock Pacific Time on Monday. Thank you again for joining us on One Hour at a Time. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.